blessing it is for my wife and I to be here this morning and get to worship with you. We've been so excited since Russ and Jenny gave us the invitation to come and be with you. If you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 4 in just a few moments. We're going to be turning there and reading from God's Word. But just let me say what an honor it is to be here. I really want to rebut (laughs) what Russ said. Had you rather be at a school where you have five different coaches win national championships? Or just have one coach that's won a national championship. I mean, do I need to say any more? Amen. He would only say that on foreign soil, let me say. He would never take me on in Kentucky. And he had to get me all the way into Illinois uh, to make that statement. As a matter of fact, I didn't tell Russ this, but this was the first year in my bracket. I thought, man, Duke with the horses they had and the coach they had, no way they could lose the national championship this year. Picked them for my bracket, told everybody this was Duke's year. What round did y'all go out in, Russ? Uh, uh, I believe, didn't he make it to the Sweet 16, if I remember correct? So I'm never picking Duke again. I just want you to know that. Stand with me if you have your Bibles this morning, and let's turn our attention to the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 4. So thankful for Russ and his family. What a blessing they've been to our lives. And what a privilege it is to put down roots in a, in a church in Hardin, Kentucky and see God bring men like Russ and, and ladies like Jeannie that we have get to pour our life into and to see God take them under, into other places and for them to get to be our spiritual children. It's just been such a blessing. You could never give me a greater honor than you gave me, Russ, by calling me your spiritual father. Just what a privilege it's, it's been to have you a, a part of our life. Ephesians chapter 4, listen to what the Word of God says. And he gave the apostles, verse 11, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God add His blessings to the reading of His Word this morning. You may be seated. He was trying to get home from vacation. He found himself in a bus station and he had just a little bit of time on his hands when all of a sudden one of those machines in the corner caught his attention. This machine actually advertised that it could tell him a little more about himself than just his weight. So Jack walked over to the machine, stepped up on it, pulled out a quarter, put it into the machine. It made a funny little noise and all of a sudden it spit out a card and he grabbed the card and the card said, Your name is Jack Brown, you weigh 175 pounds, and you're catching the 210 to Boston. Jack just couldn't believe any machine could know that much about a person. He just couldn't get that off his mind, so he walked around, he walked around, he tried to quit thinking about that. He'd keep looking at the machine, and he thought there's no way a machine could know that much about him. So he stepped up on the machine again, reached in his pocket, put in another quarter, and it spit out the same little card. And the card said, your name is Jack Brown, you weigh 175 pounds, and you're catching the 210 to Boston. This time it just kind of made him mad. So he began to examine the machine. He knew there had to be a wire from that machine over to where he had just purchased his ticket. He couldn't find anything. He walked around, and it just couldn't get it off his mind, and he decided he was going to play a trick on the machine. So he goes into the men's bathroom. Remember, he's just coming home for vacation. He goes into the men's bathroom, and he put some of his vacation clothes over the clothes that he had on, pulled out his sunglasses because he'd been down in the south, And this time he decides when he steps up on the machine, he's just going to hold his suitcase so he'll weigh a little bit more. So he reaches into the other's pocket, pulls out a quarter, puts it in the machine, steps up on the machine, and this time it makes that same little noise, and all of a sudden it spits out a card again, and this time the card says, you're still Jack Brown. 
you still weigh 175 pounds, but you just missed the 210 to Boston. Amen. Isn't it amazing sometimes things that distract us and how easy it is to live in a world where we can actually lose sight of the main thing. When I was a young man, I attended a Bible college, a Bible conference. Ron Dunn was the speaker. He was teaching for the book of Romans and he made one statement that changed my life forever as a pastor when he just made this statement. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, i got to be honest with you, Russ has already told you, we do pastor a church in Hardin, Kentucky, population 385, last census. 220, we'll know if it's still the same. But we draw a lot of people from the country. So when we remind our church that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, well, the country folks in Kentucky don't talk like that. You can't find a country folks that'll say the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Country folks say the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So at Harden, the motto of our church is literally the main thing thing is to keep the main thing thing the main thing thing. I'm here this morning, have driven two hours by Russ's invitation to just remind this precious church that the main thing thing is to keep the main thing thing the main thing, thing. And if you don't mind, we have a lot of scriptures that we could have pulled from this morning. But the reason I choose Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16 is because 34 years ago, a little church in Hardin, Kentucky took a chance on a 22-year-old farmer. I was following a man who had pastored that church for 17 years. Attendance was about 60 and they had to ask him to step down. He went down the road and started a church down the road. And the church was getting ready to split. And the pulpit committee asked a 22-year-old kid, how can you keep us from splitting? And I said, I have no idea how to keep this church from splitting. But I said, all I can promise you is this. If you call me as your pastor, all I can do is preach the word of God. And then we turned to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, and I said, I would love to come here as pastor, Lord leading, and build this church around these principles of the Word of God. And that's what we've tried to do for the last 34 years at Harding, Kentucky. Just be an instrument of God for Him to use as a pastor of a church and then leave the results up to Him. And so can I just share what is perhaps one of my top five passages in the entire Word of God with you this morning so that when you leave, you always remember that the main thing thing is to keep the main thing thing, the main thing thing. Amen? Would you just say that with me? The main thing thing is to keep the main thing thing, the main thing thing. I know first time some of you northerners have ever used bad English, right? Amen. <laughs> Now, the Bible teacher and me, before we go into this passage, must remind you of the context because normally at our church we do entire books and it would be months before we'd come to this passage. But if I can just remind you of the style of the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul writes, he always seems to begin his letters to the churches by telling us of what God has done for us in Christ. And man, in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's almost just like he theologically soars into the heavens talking about what God has done for us in Christ. Amen. But when he comes down, I love this about the Apostle Paul, he always comes down with his feet firmly planted on the earth. And after telling us about what God has done for us in Christ, then he always reminds us then of what we ought to be doing for God since we are in Christ. Does that make sense? Now guys, this is important. You never do for God hoping God will do for you. God's already done for you. God's already blessed you. Before you ever chose Him, Paul says He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in love, He predestined you to adoption so that you'd come into the family with rights of full sonship. 
He'd put the shoes on your feet, the ring on your hand, the robe on your back so that you could do kingdom business. Why did He do all the things that He'd done for you in Christ? He'd done all the things He'd done for you to the praise of the glory of His grace. God didn't do anything with you at the center. God did everything with Him at the center so that all glory and all praise goes to Him. Amen. And then He begins to tell us how He took us as sinners and transformed us into saints and in salvation and how he's taking each one of us and he's building something bigger than us and that's a church and he wants this church to be the place where his spirit dwells so that the church can bring honor and glory to him and then when we start chapter four after telling us of all the great things he's done for us in christ he's now going to tell us what we ought to be doing for him so please remember this your response in life is just to respond what you know God has already done for you. And he immediately talks about his church. And listen to what he says about the church. He gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, in the Greek New Testament, there's actually just four offices talked about here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then shepherd, pastor, teachers, probably one office. Now what this is talking about is, is not God giving individual gifts to individual people, but God giving His church a gift of leadership. Has everybody got that? So this passage isn't talking about Russ and the other pastors here. This passage is talking about this church. If this is a church that's been ordained by God, you can trust God has given you a precious gift. Now, I don't think these men are apostles. I don't think these men are prophets. I don't think these men are evangelists. I think these men are pastor teachers. They have the heart of a shepherd. When you study the New Testament, you're going to see that the Bible is going to use elder and bishop and pastors interchangeably. It's all referring to the same office of leadership. So here's what's important for a church. A church must understand that its leadership is a gift from God. Now, I want to be honest with you. I know a lot of churches in southern Illinois and western Kentucky, especially western Kentucky, who do not view their pastors as gifts from God. If they did, they wouldn't talk about them the way they talk about them. Amen? Any of you ever received a gift from somebody you love? Even if you didn't like the gift, you love the gift. Amen? I remember earlier in my ministry, I don't know why, but everybody in the church wanted to give Brother Ricky a new tie. Now, not as much in my old age, but in my young age, I was a dresser. I picked out my own clothes. And man, I would have, no disrespect, a senior saint lady, 85 years old, who can't even see anymore, want to show her pastor how much she loves him, and she would bring me a tie, and I'd open up the tie. I won't open it at home, but I'd have to open it up in front of her. And here I open it up, and my first thought was, you got to be kidding there is no way that tie will ever go around my neck. You know what I'm talking about? I didn't say that. Do you know why? Because I knew Miss Willie May. I knew she loved me. And so, man, I, I cherished that gift. I didn't go down to the store and say, you're not going to believe what Willie May Dungan gave me for Christmas. I never went anywhere and said, you're not going to believe what that tie looks like on me. I cherish the gift because of the giver. Amen? I don't think God's ever going to truly bless a church unless a church loves Him for giving Him the gift of leaders that He's given Him. Amen? I pray your pastors are here because they've been God-called. I pray they've been God-convicted. And I pray they're God-conscious. And if they are, you need to view them as a precious gift from God. Amen? Amen? Talk about them like that out in the community. And other people want to come and hear them preach and lead this church. But here's what I want to focus on. 
Because I want to say something to the pastors this morning. If the church is going to keep the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing, and that is the main thing, thing, then you guys have got to keep the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing. And according to this passage, if I understand this correctly, and I'm understanding this right, the main thing, thing of a pastor is to equip the saints. Now, in Western Kentucky, many years ago, we misread this because of our King James versions of the Bible, and most churches believe they had a pastor to equip the saints, do the work of ministry, and build up the church. So we let the pastor be a paid position, and then everybody else just encouraged and cheered on the pastor. And the pastor was supposed to equip the saints, he was supposed to do the work of ministry, and then the body was supposed to grow because of that pastor. Amen? Kind of like the Duke's mentality with Mike Krzyzewski. Amen? Rather than the Kentucky version of knowing it's the people and it's the players and it's the team. Okay, y'all got that, right? You get that, Russ? Amen. Okay, now, now, now watch this. What's the main thing, thing of the pastors here at this church? It's to equip the saints. It's not to grow the church. It's not to do all the work of ministry. It's to equip the saints. And I promise you, you show me a pastor who's spending his time trying to equip the saints through the preached, taught word of God, he won't have time to grow the church and do the work of ministry. It shows on a lot of Sunday mornings that the pastor has done a whole lot of things he shouldn't be doing when he stands in the pulpit and does not have a word from God. Amen? Now, this word equipped was used three ways in the New Testament. World. Number one, it was used to get an army ready for war. So an army has leaders, and the responsibility of the leaders is to equip those soldiers so that when they go into war, they'll be ready. Isn't it kind of ironic that the Bible refers to us many times as soldiers of God, soldiers of Christ? God's given us our marching orders. Now, I want to be honest with you, there's going to be a few times when you're going to come in to a worship service, when you're going to have a lesson here at this church, and it's going to sound like the pastor thinks he's a general of an army. And it's true. We have an enemy. He's the greatest terrorist ever known to man. And his name is Satan and he is real. And he's trying to take out families. He's trying to take out churches. He's trying to take out communities. And it's your pastor's responsibility to get this church ready so that when we go out during the week to do spiritual warfare, we are prepared as soldiers of the cross. I know people criticize our United States military, but praise God, we are the best equipped military in the world. Amen? Because somebody's life is on the line on either side of that, and it's the same way with the church, except we're not dealing with physical lives, we're dealing with spiritual lives. The souls of humanity is at stake here. So please, pastors, remember you've got to get this church ready for the spiritual war that we are in. This word was also used to get a ship ready to sail. Now when I, when I go to a lot of churches, a lot of Baptists like to say amen at this because when I talk about a pastor being there to get a ship ready to sail, one of the first ships that comes to our mind in western Kentucky is that cruise ship. I've never been on a cruise. Used to people either loved them or hate them, but now everybody loves them and everybody keeps going on cruise ships. And when I hear a family who's been on a cruise talk about a cruise, they try to get me to go on a cruise. And basically, here's the bottom line. Here's what they say. Brother Rick, you need to go on this cruise because once you step on that boat, it's all about you. Amen? I mean, you, you pay the ticket. And once you step on, everything's about you. It's about entertaining you. It's about what's best for you as a passenger. Boy, I hope this church never believes it's a cruise ship. I hope you didn't join this church thinking this church is going to be about me. I hope you're not a teenager church because you believe this is a cruise ship. And wow, we've got some fine pastors. And anytime I need them, they're going to be there for me. This is going to be all about me. No. The kind of ship this was referring to in the biblical world was what we call a cargo ship. 
where everybody on that ship knew that it wasn't about them. It was about the precious cargo. And that cargo had been loaded onto that ship from one port. It was in the belly of that ship. And it was sailing to another port. And then everybody had the responsibility of guarding that cargo and making sure when they got to the port, they unloaded that cargo into that next port. And man, I, can I suggest that's what the church of Jesus Christ is? We are not a cruise ship. We are a cargo ship. We've been entrusted with the precious gospel of God. The good news that God put His Son on a cross in our place so that we who are sinners could be transformed, forgiven, redeemed, set free, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin so that we could live a transformed life. And that cargo's been entrusted to us. And there's some ports out here. There's some people who God wants to hear the gospel. And that's the responsibility of these pastors to get this church ready to deliver the gospel into the ports that God's called you to take the gospel to. Amen? Amen. But it was also used to get a net ready to fish with. I'm not a fisherman. I live a few miles from Kentucky Lake. I meet people and they find out I'm from Kentucky Lake. They want to know, do you fish? And I say, no, I don't fish. They can't understand why I don't fish. Well, there's one reason I don't fish. When I fish, the fish aren't biting when I first come to Harden, you know, everybody wants to take their pastor fishing, and I'd go fishing. They'd tell me how the fish were biting until I got in the boat. When I got in the boat, they quit biting. Then I'd see them the next day, and they'd say, Oh, preacher, you should have been with me. When I was with you yesterday, I didn't catch a thing. I don't fish. But God spoke to me one day on Kentucky Lake. I was fishing with a man by the name of James Mathis, who later became a deacon in our church. And we'd been out fishing, and he put a rod and reel in my hand, and I was fishing, was fishing for fish, and I'd done that all morning. I caught some sticks, think I got a turtle, never got a fish. All of a sudden, we began to go to the bank, and when we're going to the bank, I see a guy out in the middle of Kentucky Lake. He's not in a fancy boat like we was in. He's in what's called a John boat, just a commercial boat. He didn't have a rod and reel in his hand. He's up on the front of the boat, and he's pulling a line. I promise you all this, I am not lying. When somebody's telling a fisherman's story, people don't believe it, right? He's pulling that line in, and then he'd do this. He would yank that line, and a fish would go over his shoulder right into the back of the boat. And then he'd just keep pulling. Didn't have a motor running. He'd keep pulling, and and six or seven hooks later, he'd do that again, and a fish would go over his shoulder. And it hit me. That guy's going to catch more fish because he's not fishing with a rod and reel in one hook. He's got a line stretched all the way across Kentucky Lake. It's called a trot line. And when the day was over, he, kept, he would catch enough fish to support his family. And here's what the Spirit of God said to me. Ricky, Ed Harden, you can be the professional fisherman. You can learn to fish and you can win all the people to Jesus and we'll baptize a lot of people. But here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to be the spiritual fisherman. I want you to get the church ready to fish. And let's let every person in our church believe they are a hook in the lake of sin. Amen? And when the day's over, if the entire church fishes, the church will win more people to Christ than if just the staff fish. Amen? So what's the responsibility of the pastors? Yes, we have to fish individually. I have people that the Lord's going to bring into my path as a Christian, not as a pastor, as a Christian. As a pastor, my responsibility is not to win people to Jesus. As a pastor, my responsibility is to get our church ready to do what they've been called to do. Amen? So I've got to keep the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing in my life. And your pastors must too. Who are we equipping? We're equipping saints. Now if I could pause here just for a moment. I don't want to upset anybody. But I hope Brother Russ remembers what I taught him when he was at Murray State. I know this is a new church start to a certain degree. But if I was reading this back home, here's what most people would hear me say. And he gave the pastor teacher to equip the saved sinners for the work of ministry. Have you ever noticed that Apostle Paul never called the church saved sinners? Not one time. He never wrote to church and said, to the saved sinners of Rome, to the saved sinners of Thessalonica, to the saved sinners. But yet in our testimony service, most people, and sometimes when you listen to our songs, 
We're sending out the message that I'm still just an old sinner saved by grace. Don't you listen to me? If I'm understanding my New Testament correctly, before you met Christ, you were a sinner. And then by His grace and by His mercy, when the gospel was revealed to you and you responded to the gospel in faith, and He saved you, the old man that you were died and a new man came alive. And the Bible describes you as a saint of God. Wow. You know why? Because God doesn't make junk. What does Ephesians 2 say? In Christ we've been what? We are His workmanship. That word for workmanship in Ephesians 2.10 literally means a piece of art. A masterpiece. I just can't get over some Reformed thinkers who think God did this marvelous thing in salvation of justifying us by grace and then leaving us just like we were except now we're saved. You kidding me? There's not two kinds of people in the world, lost sinners and saved sinners. If you've met Christ, you've been transformed from a sinner to a saint. And if you're truly a saint of God, yes, you can be tempted to sin, you can be deceived into sinning, but you, if you'll be honest with you, you don't want to sin anymore. Amen? But you still do sin. You do still sin because you still have sin in your flesh. Sin's alive in you. Sin's not dead, but you, the new man in Christ, are dead to the sin in your under your flesh. Amen? So you are a saint of God. Saint is not a description of behavior. Saint is a description of identity. Now I was raised in a little church. This is an honest, true story. There was only one lady in our church who we ever addressed growing up. Not the church I pastored when I was a kid. There was only one lady in our church, and her name was Evie Coson, and everybody referred to her as Saint Evie. That's all I knew about Saint Evie. When I got saved, nobody ever called me St. Ricky. Nobody called my mom and dad St. Bobby, St. June. They didn't call my granddaddy St. Hayden, just St. Evie. Now, you got to remember, I didn't remember her being at church much. Most times that I'd see her, we'd be driving to church, and she lived about a half mile before we'd get to the church. It was her house and one more house before you turned off into the little road where our country church was. And Miss Evie... When we'd be going to Sunday school, we'd be sitting out on her front porch and she'd be waving. So I'd always sit on the driver's side of the car in the back seat behind my dad. And so we'd be driving to church and my dad would say, y'all wave at St. Evie. And all of us in the car, we'd wave at St. Evie. We'd go to church, spend about two and a half hours there and then we'd come back. And when we'd come back, she's still on the front porch. Still rocky. Now I'm on the other side. My sister's closer to her because she's on the passenger side. And so as we're coming by, mom, for some reason, would say, now y'all wave bye to St. Evie, and we'd all wave bye to St. Evie. And you know, it dawned on me. I understand why we called her St. Evie. She was so old, she couldn't ascend if she wanted to. Amen? <laughs> Amen? Y'all get that? What, what is it in the church about us believing that somehow you become a saint when you get so old you can't sin or you become a saint after you die and get voted into sainthood later in life? That's all a lie. Every person who's been born again is transferred from sinner to saint. Amen? Saint doesn't mean you're sinless. Saint means you sin less because you have a new nature. Matter of fact, this word saint literally comes from a word that means to be a holy one. That's even worse, right? Holy one Ricky. Holy one Andy. Holy one Russ. If somebody come at Walmart and said, hey, holy one. <laughs> wouldn't most of us look to see who they were talking about? And once it zeroed in us, wouldn't you start to kind of hide behind some of the clothes? But see, this word holy, it literally means to be cut. But you're cutting to make a separation. That's what the word saint means. It means to be in a class all by yourself. It means you're not who you used to be in sin. You've now been moved out of sin into Christ, and Christ gives you a new nature. Amen? So you're not a saved sinner. 
You're a saint who can still sin, but you don't want to sin. And when you do sin, you confess it. So we are the confessors of more sin, even though we're sinning less, because we're aware of more sin than we've ever been aware of, even though we're actually sinning less than we've ever sinned. Did y'all catch that? This is important. If you believe you're just a saved sinner, I promise you, you'll never rise to the level of a member of a church you need to be, and you'll never totally submit yourself to the leadership of this church because you feel like you're not worthy. Your worthiness is not, is not based on what you do for God. Your worthiness is based on what He's already done for you in Christ. And He's elevated you to sainthood right now. Amen? Now, if we can be truthful, most of us, when we look in the mirror... We don't see we're saints. Everybody agree? Again, I had God illustrate this to me one day. When Celisa and I got married, we decided she was going to be one of those stay-at-home moms. We were raised on the farm. But in order for her to feel good about being a stay-at-home mom, she felt like she had to contribute. And the way she was going to contribute was she was going to save us money. And the way she was going to save us money was she was going to sew and make all of our clothing. Now, you guys got to understand. Remember what I told you earlier? There was a time in my life when I was into clothes. I actually modeled clothes for a local store in our county. And now I have my wife tell me that she's going to start making my clothes to save us money. I just wasn't real big on that, but I knew to be kind. So I said, honey, that's great. Why don't you make yours first? (laughs) And as kids come along, we'll make theirs and... I'll sacrifice and I'll go last. I'll just wear what I've got. Amen? So here's what we did. Do you all know where Paducah, Kentucky is? Okay. We went to Paducah, Kentucky, and we stopped on one side of town and got a Foth sewing machine. And we got something else too, a serger, I think it was called. I mean, we're saving money, right? We're spending money to save money. And then I'll never forget this. We drove across town, and they had this big old huge building. Because now that we got the sewing machine, we got the surgery, we got to go get material and a pattern. And so we go in this big building, and I walked in it, and there was just miles and miles, acres and acres of clothing and material. And I just, I just, material, I just couldn't do this, so I went back outside. I read why Salisa did what she was doing. And, man, after a couple of hours, she was still in there. I had to go check on her. And she now has this material. She has this pattern. And I get there. By the time she's checking out, we get in our vehicle. We drive home. Now, we bought a 40-acre farm, and it had like a 760-square-foot, 100-year-old farmhouse on it. Now, when you have a house that small, what that meant is when I opened the front door, I took two steps. I was through my living room. One step more, I was through my kitchen. And now I was standing on the back porch, which was about two by two. Well, when you've got a house that small, you have to have dual-purpose rooms. So we decided that back porch would now be the back porch slash sewing room. Okay? Now, here's what Salisa did. Immediately, I mean, she took out the material. She laid it on the floor. Well, the two-by-two sewing room wouldn't hold the material. So she had to go into the kitchen. She lays that material down on the ground. She takes the pattern out of this dress, and it was a beautiful dress. She takes the pattern out, and she pins the dress. Y'all get the picture, right? Y'all know how that works. Well, she was having so much fun, I had to leave. So I leave. I go check the farm and come in and out. It was about three or four days later. I'll never forget this long as I live. I came in one day, and when I came in, I said, Honey! Well, she heard me, but she didn't say a word. Two steps later... I'm right in front of her in the kitchen and she's holding up the first dress she's made. And she is beaming from ear to ear, so tickled. I would never do this now. But I wasn't as mature as I am now. Now you got to remember, after she learns to make hers, she's going to make mine. So I've got a little at stake here. And so when she's holding that up, The first words that came out of my mouth were honest words. I just said, I'm not going anywhere with you if you're going to wear that. (laughs) And it hurt her feelings. She dropped her little head. And when she dropped her little head, she went, oh. I'll never forget this. You remember it. 
She took that little petite hand, connected that little petite arm, and she ran her arm inside that dress, and she grabbed hold of what was on the inside, and she started pulling what was on the inside up, and the next thing you know, what was on the outside started going on the inside, and what was on the inside started coming to the outside, and all of a sudden, she held that thing out, and when she turned that thing inside and out, I said, where are we going tonight, honey? That is beautiful. Y'all get it? See, what she showed me, I could still see the ragged threads. I could see the cut marks. I could see. She hadn't turned it inside out yet. See, sometimes when you look in the mirror, you don't see what God sees. You see His work of sanctification in your life. But trust me on this. On the day of the second coming of Christ, God's going to turn what's out in. He's going to turn what's in out. And the whole world's going to know what He's been saying from eternity. And that is, these are my saints. These are my holy ones. Amen. Wow. Please trust what the Bible says about you. You are in a class all by yourself. And the reason you're in this church is because if you wasn't in this church, these pastors have nothing to do. But they're here because of you. To get you ready for what? The work of ministry. Amen. See, the main thing, thing for the pastor or teacher is to equip the saints. Now, what's the main thing, thing of the saints? It's to do the work of ministry. If you're a saint of God, would you just raise your hand this more so I know who I'm talking to? Amen. God bless you. Saints, listen. You're not here to tithe so you can support a pastor so a pastor can do the work of ministry. You're here to do the work of ministry. This word work is where we get our English word energy from. They don't run it anymore, but when I was younger, they used to have this little bunny rabbit that advertised this certain battery, and that thing just kept going and 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 going, and he never quit. Why does the ministry of the church never stop? Because it's not built around the pastor. It's built around the church. Amen? You are the energy of this church. Every saint of God is the energy of the church. You are what energizes ministry. This word ministry is where we get our English word deacon from. In our church, we have a group of deacons, and I love our deacons. Russ, nobody has ever heard me say anything negative about deacons. I love our deacons. But you do know where that word deacon comes from in the Greek language, right? It's a word that literally means to have dirty feet. At the root of the word deacon, it means to serve. And it, and it was a word that came to us because in the ancient world, if you were a servant, you didn't wear shoes. If you were a son, you had shoes. So if you were not a son and you were a servant, you always had dirty feet in the dry season and you had muddy feet in the wet season. Does that make sense? So I affectionately call our ordained deacons at Hardin Baptist Church the dirty-footed ones. Our deacons' meetings begins by me saying, Hey, dirty-footed ones. Now they know I'm being affectionate, and then they affectionately say back to me, We're doing great, oh beautiful-footed one. Now you know why they call me that, right? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, How beautiful are the freed of him who preaches the good news. Amen? So I'm the preacher. I got beautiful feet. They're the deacons. They got dirty feet. You get that? Have any of you ever heard that expression, roll up your britches legs? Any of you ever had to roll up your sleeves because you're getting ready to get dirty? It's getting ready to do something? That's the picture here. Here's what ministry in the church is. It's the place you get dirty. It's the place you take your shoes and socks off. It's the place you roll up your sleeves. It's the place you take your coat and your tie off and you serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. And here's what the Bible's going to teach. The Bible's going to teach that if you are a saint of God, the Holy Spirit of God has given you a spiritual gift. He's given you a spiritual ministry and He's given you a spiritual enabling. Amen. Each one of us. Why? Because the church isn't a hand or a knee or a foot or a shoulder or an elbow. The foot is a body. And so God designed you the way He designed you, not to be like anybody else, so that you can do what God's called you to do, and that's to be the knee, to be the foot, to be the thigh, to be the shoulder. Amen? Guys, you're vital to this church. Don't you ever let anybody tell you this church is built around the pastors. It's not. 
This church is built around Jesus Christ and His members, and He loves you so much as members of His body that He's given you the gift of leadership. Amen? Can I ask you this? Are you serving? Or are you attending? I think one of the biggest things we ever did wrong was making church be the place where we put our different clothes on and we can't get dirty. We meant that in reverence to God. But many of us walked out of those doors believing we can't rub shoulders to shoulders with the sinners of the world. We can't get people to serve in the nursery because, wow, can't get slobber on them. You kidding me? Can I tell you how God pricked my heart one day at church? A lady come up to me when we were still downtown Harden before we moved out to the four lane and a lady come up to me and she pointed over at the car and she said, Brother Ricky, I got a flat tire. Now I'm a farmer. But on Sunday morning, I had a suit on. Mama bought suit, necktie, looking good. And my first thought was, oh no, I can't change her tire in this suit. I just don't have that ability. And I lived about 15 minutes from the church and the time I ran home, come back. About that time, Tim Cox came bopping around the sidewalk around the corner of the building and Tim had on blue jeans. He had his long hair pulled back in a ponytail and he had this shirt tail out. Tim come up and I said, Tim, you're not going to believe this, but Miss so-and-so, she's got a flat tire. He looked at me and said, Pastor, I got blue jeans on. You let me go change her tire. I don't want you to get that suit dirty. And I'm thinking, praise God, Tim, come around the building about that time. And I sat on the front porch watching Tim walk across the parking lot and change her tire. I promise y'all this, you're going to think I'm silly. But it was as if I heard the Spirit of God say to me, I need more Christians in blue jeans than mama bought suits. Amen? Ministry is where you get dirty. I want you to attend this church and be proud of being a member of this church because you have a pastor who's going to love you enough to equip you to recognize your spiritual gift and get you into spiritual ministry and recognize you have a spiritual energy. Amen? And then as I close, see, if the pastor of the church keep the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing, and the saints keep the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing, listen to what the Bible says. When the pastors equip the saints and the saints are doing the work of ministry, what does ministry do? Builds up the body. Builds up the body. Builds up the body. Now, old King James that I cut my teeth on in western Kentucky said edifies. ESV's done a little better job of translating that into southern Illinois and west Kentucky language by telling us that that word edify literally means to build up. Do you know how this word was used in the ancient world? This word was used in the ancient world to start a fire. To build a fire. And when you build a fire, what happens to the fire? It produces heat. Agreed? Okay, now watch this. Y'all do know there's an art to building a fire, right? We camp at Hillman Ferry Campground in the land between the lakes of western Kentucky, and my wife will not camp without a campfire. She loves a campfire. And I've gotten pretty good over the years at building a campfire. Now, I take my wood. It's got to be seasoned wood. Really seasoned. Really dry. It's got to be combustible. I take my axe and flex my man muscles and I cut that wood into smaller pieces I can cut it into. And then I start building like little teepees. I just have that wood just touching each other all over. Don't bring in the big sticks yet, just the little sticks. And then I put my big sticks where air can flow to those little sticks and then I take, I cheat, I put the charcoal lighter on it. Put the charcoal lighter on it. Then I take my match and I light that. But can I tell y'all what I've learned? I've learned that those sticks only burn where they touch. I have never taken one stick, put charcoal lighter on it, and put it in there and started it on fire. It'll burn out. True? No, not right? So you let those sticks begin to burn and then as they begin to burn and as they get hot, 
Then you start bringing your bigger sticks. Still seasoned sticks. And those seasoned sticks will catch fire from those smaller sticks. And then when you get it burning really good, that's when you bring in the green wood, right? And then the wood of those seasoned sticks causes that green wood to lose its sap. And the next thing you know, that fire will burn. But have you ever noticed this? After it burns for a while, the sticks say, I don't want to touch you anymore. And next thing you know, in a campfire, if you wake up the next morning, am I not right? There'll be an end of a log here, an end of a piece of stick here, an end of a piece of stick here that didn't burn all the way through, right? But sometimes there'll still be some coals in the middle of that fire. And if you take an instrument like a poker and you poke them back to the middle and you blow on them, poof, they'll start burning again. Amen? Do you know if you remember your granddad's old fire boxes in the house? where they actually burned wood in the house in a fire, not a fireplace, a fire box. And it had that top lid where they put the wood and then it would burn and then your granddad would take a poker and when those sticks wouldn't touch, he'd kind of poke them back together and then they'd poof again. Every morning I'd watch my granddaddy Bogard take another door at the bottom and pull out what was called ashes. And he had an ash pile out beside the garden and he'd pull out that ash pan. That was the part of the wood that had burned completely in two, completely burned up. Couldn't even recognize it as wood anymore. And he'd take and he'd dump it out beside the garden. Man, I've built enough fires over at him and Ferry and I've watched my granddad do enough that here's what I've decided. I'm not going to be one of those Christians that wants to preserve part of me so that when I die, they can take a piece of me and put it up on a mantle and say, wow, do you remember Brother Ricky? I don't want no plaque on a door anywhere for anything that I've ever done for the glory of God. When the day of judgment comes and God has to assemble us, I don't want to come out of the part of the wood where there's still some of me that didn't burn completely up. I want to be out on the ash pile. Amen. I don't want there to be anything left of me. Why? Because I've only got one life to burn for the glory of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I want to be in a church where everybody around me as members have that same compassion that one day when our life is over, we want to have done all we can do for the glory of God. And the way we're going to do that is keep the main thing the main thing. It's ministry that builds up the church, but it's the saints of God who energize the ministry, and it's the pastor teachers who equip the saints to do the work of ministry that's going to ultimately build up the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So what's the main thing thing? It's to keep the main thing thing. The main thing thing. So what's the main thing of this church? It's to glorify God. What's the main thing for you as a saint? is to recognize your spiritual gift. Realize you've got a spiritual enabling and you have a place of ministry in this body, in this community. And then for you to bring yourself in the leadership of your pastor. And what's the main thing, thing of your pastors? To spend their week. So that when they teach, when they preach, it's not a history lesson. It's not exercising how fluent they are in Greek and Hebrew. When that message is over, each one of us better be more equipped to do what God's called us to do. And if our pastor's preaching, teaching is doing that, then they're keeping the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing. Carbondale, Illinois doesn't need another church unless the other church is going to keep the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing. Will you commit this morning to keeping the main thing, thing, the main thing, thing? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, what, what a group of worshipers. Father, each seems to have listened. I believe many this morning sensed <laughs> not a guy who butchers the Western Kentucky or the English language or who has a West Kentucky accent, but they, they sense they heard from you. And they want to do more than just attend a church plant. They want to do more than just being something that's different, not traditional. They want to be in a vibrant body where the pastors are equipping the saints and the saints 
are taking responsibility for ministry. And then they know that collectively the ministries of this church they're going to build up this body because the sinners are going to be evangelized, the saints, they're going to be equipped and ultimately you will be glorified, God. Because you want the world to see your body just as you want us to see your son. And we recognize now that when they see your body, your body, us, we point them to our head who is Jesus. And this is why you did everything around you. This is why you did everything for your glory. Is because if you let someone be drawn to us, we'll fail them. We'll let them down. But you'll never let someone down. You'll never fail someone. So I thank you that the gospel is not man-centered and the church is not man-centered. But we're God-centered. Because we want people to be drawn to you. Oh, Father, I believe you've got a great vision for this church. You've got a need and a purpose for them here. So, Father, please help them never forget that they need to keep the main thing thing, the main thing thing. Father, on these next few verses of a song, if there's a pastor here, if there's a church leader here, if there's a member here, if there's a sinner here who wants to come to salvation so they can be part of the church, because you've got to be saved before you can be part of the church, we're just going to open ourselves to respond to you. So, Father, we're going to ask this worship leader now just to begin to lead us through a song or a hymn. And then we want this congregation just to feel the liberty to respond. We're going to turn the service over to Brother Russ to let him conduct this as he sees necessary and as he feels you leading. But, Father, we want everyone to have an opportunity. If they just want to come up here to Brother Russ and say, Brother Russ, I want to be praying for you. I want you to equip me. I want you to help me find my spiritual gift. Or if someone's got a ministry on their heart that they feel would bless this church, maybe now's the time for them to step out and just share it with the pastor. Or if there's somebody here who's cold, not warm, kind of reserved because they've been hurt maybe in another church experience or they had a Christian hurt them and they're afraid to get too close together. No, Father, it's, it's us getting together in ministry that keeps us together like those sticks on that fire. So ministry is the place that I rub shoulders with somebody and truly burn for the glory of you. In your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. Could we stand together and just listen to the Spirit of the Lord?